Very pleasant. Good morning to each one of you that are gathered here this morning. Thank you for coming upon this Lord's Day to offer our worship unto God, to encourage one another in these songs that we have sung and in the prayers that have been offered already this morning. Appreciate it. Uh, if you are visiting with us this morning, we are certainly glad that you have decided to come and to join us here. Our only aim is to uh, offer praise and glory and honor to our great God as we can build one another up in our walk with Him and in our faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. And so I hope that your uh, mind and that even your emotions have been touched this morning as we have sung together, as we have prayed together, certainly as we have gathered around the table of our Lord Jesus Christ together and we have remembered the tremendous love that our God has for us and that our Savior has for each one of us. And I hope that our minds will continue to be upon our great God as we open his word together this morning and consider some good things that he has to say to us. Emotions are the fireworks of life. Think about that statement for just a moment. Emotions are the fireworks of life. I didn't come up with that particular saying. A gospel preacher in Texas, Tim Jennings, which by the way, I think he is planning to be with us in our summer meeting next year. But he wrote those words about seven years ago in a May 2016 article in Focus Magazine online. Emotions are the fireworks of life. Like fireworks, emotions can either brighten the otherwise mundane moments of life with just a brilliant burst of color, or they can explode when we least expect them, and they can cause all kinds of harm and damage to ourselves and to those that are around us. And which one of those results occurs really depends upon whether we are people who are controlling our emotions and have our emotions in check and are trying to channel them in the right way for the right purpose, or whether our emotions are controlling us. Even though our culture, the society in which we live today, tells us that we ought to be people who are subject to our emotions rather than our emotions being subject to us, I think it's very important that we realize that emotions are not something that are bad. <laughs> emotions are not evil in and of themselves. In fact, as we read Scripture, we find all throughout the pages of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, from the beginning to the end, that our great God is an emotional being. Our God, as you read through the pages of Scripture, you will find that He expresses emotions such as grief and anger and love, and joy, and so many other emotions in between. And because we are people who have been made in God's image, we too express emotions. So what do we do with that? What do we do with our emotions? How do we use them correctly? What, what things ought to move us to emotions? Well, as we continue our yearly theme that we're thinking about as a congregation this year of being more like Jesus, 
I want us to look to him. I want us to see what kind of things move Jesus to emotion. I want us to see how Jesus took those emotions that he had as being fully God and fully man, as has already been pointed out to us this morning, and how he took those emotions and perfectly expressed those emotions in his life as he lived here upon this earth so that we can be more like Jesus, yes, even in our emotions. This lesson is not just a one-part lesson. Uh, There is so much, I think, that is said in the Gospels about Jesus and his emotions. And so we're going to look at two points this morning. And then, Lord willing, next Sunday morning, we will look at two more points as we think about how we can be more like our Lord and Savior in our emotions. What is it that moved Jesus to emotion? The first thing I want us to think about in answer to that question is, as he looked at people that he interacted with, people that came into his life, people's, people whose paths crossed his own path, and he saw people in physical distress that Jesus was oftentimes moved to emotion. Although we know, as Jesus himself said in passages like Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, that giving us his mission statement or why he came to earth, that he came to seek and to save those who are lost. And we understand that that was really the focus of why Jesus came, that he came to seek and to save those who were lost in their sins, who were dead in sin, who were slaves to sin. And so he had a spiritual focus as he came into this world. He came to seek and to save those who were hurting spiritually, we might say. As we read the accounts of his life in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we find that he was often moved to emotion and to action by people who also physically hurt. And perhaps this is so because he, being God and man, God with us, God in the flesh, he more than anyone else who has ever walked and lived upon this earth knew that physical ailments are just one consequence of humanity's spiritual sickness of sin. When sin came into the world then we had to experience all of these things that God did not intend for us to experience. And so what emotions did Jesus express toward people in physical distress? My Bible is open and I would invite you to open yours first of all this morning to the Gospel of Luke in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, and I want us to begin reading here beginning at verse 11. Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 11. This follows, of course, Jesus healing the centurion's servant But verse 11, Luke says, Soon afterwards he went to a city called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Although there was this large crowd, as Luke points out to us here at this particular point, that is following Jesus around, maybe it's some of the people that had just seen or just... uh, uh, witness what he had done with this centurion servant, even though he is not there physically with the servant, that the news comes back uh, that this man has been healed as he goes home. And Jesus talks about that centurion and says, you know, I haven't seen such faith like this in all of Israel. It may have been some that were in that crowd, but it may have been some that had been following Jesus for a long, long time. But here is this large crowd of people that are following Jesus. And notice that even though he has a large crowd around him, He is not too tired. He is not too busy 
to notice this particular woman. And notice that Luke tells us she has not only lost her husband, but now she has lost her son. But more than that, notice that she has not only lost her husband and son, but she has lost, Luke says, her only son. I know this, what I'm about to say here, is not recorded in Luke's account or any other account. But I'm just thinking from the perspective of Jesus, surely that touched Jesus to the very core of who he was. Surely that touched his emotions as he was thinking about himself as being God's only son. I believe that's why maybe Luke tells us there, this is this woman's only son. And maybe his mind is going even further on into the future about him being the only son of God and he dying. But nevertheless, whether those were his thoughts or not, how did Jesus respond? Jesus didn't just walk by this woman. Jesus didn't turn his head the other way and say, I don't have time for you. No, Jesus stopped and with compassion, Luke tells us, he said to her, do not weep. She was in a very fragile emotional state as any of us would be, I think, in this particular situation. You have lost your spouse. You have lost your only son. And he says, do not weep. And then he turns that emotion of compassion into action by bringing her son back to life. This touched Jesus very deeply. And even knowing that he has the power to raise this boy, this son from the dead, to bring him back to life, he is still touched and he shows compassion for this particular woman in her situation. I want us to think secondly then over in the Gospel of John, and this is probably an account that many of us know even better than the one we just read in Luke chapter 7. But in John chapter 11, I think we're all familiar, if you're not, what's going on here uh, about Lazarus, a friend of Jesus, dying. And I want us to read here as Jesus has already come to Martha and he's had a conversation with her and asked her if she believes who he really is, that he is the resurrection and the life. And she affirms uh, that she does. But I want us to begin reading here at verse 30. It says, Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. Jesus obviously, as I think John is trying to point out to us and really uh, focus on this particular point or emphasize this point here in John chapter 11 about the closeness of the relationship that existed between Jesus, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. It is said to us several times in this chapter that Jesus had a deep love for these three people. Notice back in verse 3, it says, The sisters sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, whom you love, uh, he who, whom you love is sick. Verse 5 says, So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed there two days. Uh, verse 5, rather, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And then, as we just read at the end of our reading a minute ago from verse 36, here are all the Jews that have come to comfort and console Mary and Martha in their distressful situation of their brother dying. 
And they even notice about what Jesus says and how Jesus acts and even the emotions of Jesus that surely Jesus loved this particular man, Lazarus. And so when Jesus saw these two sisters and their friends weeping over their brother's death, the Bible says to us here, John does, that he was deeply moved in spirit, that he was deeply troubled. It is the idea of Jesus maybe being angry at the the, the effects of sin, that there has been death because sin has come into the world, even physically death, that he's agitated maybe at death and sin to the point that he is weeping as well. We all know, I think everybody probably in this room that, that is able to read and comprehend knows John 11 and verse 35 is the shortest verse in all of Scripture that Jesus wept. Only two words. But I believe it is saying a lot to us that even though Jesus knew obviously that he is going to raise Lazarus from the dead, he, he explained that to his disciples earlier and that's why he had not come right when the sisters told him that the one whom you love is sick because he knew that this would be an opportunity to glorify his father and that he as the son of God would be glorified as well. And so even though Jesus knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, the emotions of all of these sad individuals here moved him to emotion that resulted in action. Of course, we know what happens when we come to verse 43. It says, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus did, in fact, come forth from the dead. We have to be people, and I think I've said this already, maybe in this series before, but we have to be people like Jesus who walk around with our eyes open and not our eyes shut. We've got to be people who walk around with our ears open and not our ears shut. We've got to be people who in some sense are in tune with our world. Not that we're trying to be like the world, not that we're trying to pattern our life after the world and how they live and how they act and how they talk and dress and all those kinds of things. But we've still got to be people who interact with our world. And we've got to be people like Jesus, our Lord and Savior, who have our eyes wide open that we will see that physical sickness and physical ailments and physical pains of people all around us are ever present. We don't have to go very far to look for that. And I don't know if it's just because I'm getting older in life that maybe those things uh, are, are more readily seen. I can readily, more readily see those things than I did when I was younger. But you don't have to go very far. There are hospitals filled with sick people all around us. <laughs> there are people on street corners that are hurting, that are ailing. There are people all around us as there were in the days of Jesus Christ who are phys physically in distress. And that ought to move us like it did our Lord and Savior to not only feel compassion for them, but also to show love and compassion to them. And so a few passages for us to consider. I know some of these, I think, are in the context specifically of our one another relationships in the body of Christ and so how we interact as brothers and sisters in Christ. But I do believe the things that are stated in these verses, at least in principle, apply to our relationships to everyone, whether they are Christian or not. So remember what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12 and verse 15 where he instructed us there that we are to be people who rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Here we find Jesus as he comes to this widow who has lost her only son and she is weeping and he is moved with compassion to heal 
this man and to bring him back to life. There with Lazarus again, he is in an environment of people that are all sad, people that are weeping because Lazarus, their friend and their brother has died, and Jesus is moved to weep there with them. And so again, we have to live with our eyes open. We have to be in tune to what is going on around us. In the very next chapter, I think there is an instruction here that is not just limited to our one another relationships as Christians, but here he begins to talk, obviously in the first part of this chapter, about our relationship, our responsibilities to our government. But then I think he opens it up to our responsibilities to everyone that we come across. And he says this, beginning at verse 8, uh, owe, no, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. We know this isn't something that just Paul is writing this one time. This is something really that Jesus himself taught. When the lawyer came to him and asked, what, what are, what's the greatest commandment in the law? It's to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but it's also to love your neighbor as yourself. And in loving our neighbor as ourself, we are showing, I think, our true love for God. That includes looking out for one another. And when we see someone who is in physical distress to show love to them, we might say, well, I'm not hating my, my fellow man. I'm not actively trying to do him harm or her harm. But I believe Paul is telling us here, it's more than just refraining from doing wrong for them. It is actively being engaged in showing love to them. And then I think about something that the Apostle Paul wrote. Again, this is really in the context of our relationships to each other in the body of Christ. But think about these principles, how we can apply them to just people in the world that we come across that are in physical distress uh, Paul writes there in Colossians chapter 3 at verse 12, he says, So as those who have been chosen of God, that God has chosen us in His Son Jesus Christ to be His children, this is the kind of children that we need to be. He says we are to be holy and beloved. We are to put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And then verse 14, he kind of sums it all up and he says, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. This is the kind of heart he is saying in essence, a follower of Jesus Christ truly has that we have a heart of kindness. We have a heart of compassion. We have a heart of patience and gentleness with one another. And especially as we see people from day to day that are in physical distress, maybe there's not something that we specifically can do. Maybe we're not a skilled doctor or a skilled nurse. Maybe we don't have the, the skills, the gifts, the abilities to help that person, but we can point them in the right direction. And we can be like Jesus, our Lord and Savior, by being moved to emotion, but not only moved to emotion, but moved to action. And so as we see people around us in such terrible shape physically, are we people who are moved to emotion as Jesus was, to where we are ready to help them in their time of need? But secondly, and connected to that, what moved Jesus to emotion was people in spiritual distress. As we just stated, Jesus obviously was moved with emotion for those who hurt physically but he was moved to emotion, I have to think, just even surely more so for those who hurt spiritually. Because again, he came to seek and to save those who are lost. 
he came to lay down his life as a ransom for many. And so what emotions did Jesus express toward people who were spiritually distraught? I want us to go to the book of Matthew in chapter 9 at the end of that chapter. Uh, Just, I think, such a powerful picture, such a powerful passage for us to consider on a number of different levels. In Matthew chapter 9, let's begin reading here at verse 35. Matthew says that Jesus was going throughout through all their cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. As Jesus is traveling around from place to place, I want you to notice that he not only healed, as Matthew tells us in this text, every kind of disease and every kind of sickness, but he is also proclaiming the gospel. He is also telling people about the good news about himself. Of course, the gospel message, he couldn't preach it in its entirety in its fullness. He had not yet gone to the cross. He had not yet risen from the grave. He had not yet ascended to his father. But he is trying to prepare the soul. He is is teaching people that there is salvation in him. And these people, even the physically healthy that might have been among them at this particular point in this crowd, they they were all, as he looked at them, he realized they were all in spiritual distress. They were, as he says, like lost sheep. That They were like people who had no spiritual shepherd to lead them in the paths of righteousness in the words of David in Psalm 23. They had no shepherd to feed them with the bread of life. And as John talks about in his gospel, as Jesus says there, one of those I am statements, that I am the bread of life. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. But they had no one to feed them with the bread of life. They had no one to protect them from the evil one. And Jesus says the good shepherd, as he describes himself that way in John 10, that he's the one that is the door to the sheepfold. He is the one that is protecting people from Satan himself. And seeing these lost people gathered here on this occasion who had no spiritual compass, it moved Jesus to feel love. It moved Jesus to feel compassion for them. It moved Jesus to act on their behalf, to send the 12 out here in the next chapter in Matthew chapter 10, to send them out into the fields to sow the good seed and to reap a spiritual harvest. You might notice there in the next chapter the instructions that Jesus gives to the twelve at verse 6. He says, but rather go to the lost sheep. (laughs) Interesting that he uses that kind of language. Rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as you preach, go preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yes, he was moved to love to not only heal the physical ailments and maladies of all these people that had been brought to him, but more than that, to see past that and to see their need inside of them in their soul that they were people who were in spiritual distress. We've been studying through the Gospel of Mark in our Friday morning men's class. Um, And we talked a number of weeks ago about Mark chapter 6. I want us to turn over there to Mark chapter 6 as we look at another instance of of Jesus and the emotions that he showed. Mark chapter 6 at verse 33. Mark says, The people saw them going, and many re, uh, recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. 
In the section preceding this one in Mark chapter 6, which is also parallel to Matthew chapter 14, we learn that John the baptizer, John the Baptist has died, that Jesus and his apostles have gone away to a secluded, isolated location, that Jesus, it seems, needs some time to process what has just happened with the one who was the forerunner of himself. But all these crowds find Jesus as they always do. And while Matthew in his account in Matthew chapter 14 and verse 14 wrote that Jesus' compassion for the crowds caused him to heal their sick, it is Mark, as we just read in this text, that informs us that the compassion and the love of Jesus also caused him to teach them many things. That Jesus was taking advantage of this opportunity where so many people had gathered together to listen to him that he was not just going to heal their physical maladies and take away their physical distress, but more than that, again, he had come as a savior of the world. And he was going to heal them spiritually. He was going to teach them things that would point them in the right direction spiritually. Although there's no doubt in my mind that this crowd was a crowd of Jews, this crowd of people was in spiritual distress. As we just read earlier from Matthew chapter 9, that they were much the same crowd. Not saying this is the same occasion, but they had the same need. And they were people who were just kind of wandering through life. They did not have any spiritual aim, any spiritual direction. They were people who were in dire need of spiritual truth. Yes, they were people who were in dire need of he who is the truth himself. And in his great love and compassion for them, notice that Jesus supplied their need. He didn't say, well, I'm too busy for that. Check back with me later. I'll get around to teaching you the things that you need to learn on another occasion No, he took this opportunity to teach them many spiritual truths. Though we today may not encounter the enormous crowds that Jesus did, and more than likely we will not throughout our earthly life, we again do see people every day who are spiritually distressed. We see people, whether they know it or not, that are spiritually lost. (laughs) They are like the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They they are people who who need some focus and need some direction in their lives spiritually. They they may not be bad, immoral people necessarily, but they just don't know the right way to go. And it is up to us, I believe, as followers of Christ that we can point them in the right direction, not to say, come and follow me, but to say, come and follow Jesus. Here is the way of Christ. Christ. However, once again, if they are not following the Good Shepherd in their current condition, they are lost. And they need us to be like Jesus. They need us to feel and to show love and compassion for their souls by passionately teaching them the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. I think about the Apostle Paul as he obviously converted from Judaism to Christianity And as he is preaching the message of Christ, even to his own Jewish brethren, to just think about the heart that he had for them. He says in Romans 10 and verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. The Apostle Paul, and you can see that, I think, in the work that he did as it's outlined for us, especially through the book of Acts. In all the places that he went, if there was a synagogue, he first went to the synagogue and he tried to reason with those Jews from the scriptures, the old scriptures about Jesus being the Christ, giving them evidence that Jesus truly is the Messiah of God. 
And Paul obviously suffered a lot for preaching that message, even to his own Jewish brethren. But here you see the heart of Paul. Here you see that his heart is touched, that his true desire and his prayer for them is for their salvation. He was willing to go to great lengths. He was willing to give up his own freedoms and liberties in Christ so that he could preach the message of salvation to his own Jewish brethren. And he wanted so desperately for them to hear it and to believe it and to be saved just as he was. And I think we all need to examine our own heart and ask, is that our true desire? <laughs> that we want everyone around us to be saved. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, as the Apostle Paul uh, writes about, uh, our, at the end of chapter 4, our earthly bodies are decaying, but our inner man is being renewed day by day. And as we think about that new body that we will one day have, that it won't just be a temporary tent, but it will be an eternal dwelling with God. The Apostle Paul kind of concludes all of that. And he says at verse 11 in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore, knowing the fear or the terror, some versions say of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. Later on in this chapter, he goes on to say, Therefore, another conclusion at verse 20, We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Here you can see the pleading, here you can see the urging of the Apostle Paul that this touched every fiber of his being, that there were people who were lost. And we know the fear of the Lord, he says, Therefore, we are to go not to compel men, or to give them no other choice, but we are to go with the gospel message of Jesus Christ and persuade them as deeply and as fervently and as passionately as we can that one day, verse 10 of this chapter, they're going to stand in judgment before God and they're going to give an answer for the choices that they made in this life. And we need to be people who are begging folks, urging and pleading with them to be reconciled to our great God. As you think about your own life, you need to ask yourself, am I a person like Jesus in this regard? Am I one who has moved to emotion that results in soul-saving action for people that are in spiritually, uh, people that are spiritually distressed? Because just as we have a number of folks all around us every day that are physically hurting, we have just as many, if not more, around us every day who are spiritually hurting and in need. Well, that's only half the lesson. <laughs> but we're out of time this morning. So I hope, if possible, you can come back next Sunday and we'll think about some more good things from the gospel accounts to help us be more like Jesus, to channel our emotions in the right way, to use them to God's glory and to accomplish his great work in our life. What about you this morning? Where, where do you stand with God? Are you lost? We, we, we kind of don't, I think, in our modern American culture, we don't like to talk about someone being lost. We, we're just kind of at a point now where, you know, you're okay and I'm okay, and we're, we're all taking different paths, but we're getting to the same place. But there are some people who are lost. They are like lost sheep. They don't know where they need to go. They don't know where they need to look. And then one day they're just going to go off the cliff, spiritually speaking, if we don't point them in the right direction. But is that you this morning? Are you lost? 
If so, Jesus, the loving shepherd, is moved with love. And he is moved with compassion for your soul. And he is lovingly and tenderly calling you through his gospel to come to him and to be saved from your sins. That's the invitation this morning. That's the invitation every Sunday. What about you this morning? Will you answer his call right now? There's not a better time, a better place for you to answer the call, the invitation of Jesus to come and to follow him. And he will lead you in the paths of righteousness. Think about that question if you're subject to the invitation of Jesus Christ in any way at all. We hope that you'll respond by coming to the front. Let your wishes be made known as we stand and as we sing.